Heavenly Father, the passages that we have heard read and the songs that we have had a chance to sing are sufficient to remind us that You are holy, holy, holy. That we as Your creatures and sinful creatures at that require Your presence and Your power if we are to worship You rightly. I pray, Father, that You would bless us this morning with that. That You would, by the power of Your Spirit, show us Christ clearly. And in showing us Christ, show us Your holiness. That we might be like the angels in heaven at this very moment, compelled to worship You with all of who we are. Father, we come this morning and we must seek Your forgiveness. You are worthy of all glory and honor and praise, every moment of every day, our whole lives given unto You in all that we do, and yet we do not do that. And so I ask that You would forgive us. Forgive us as a church, Father, and instead enable us this morning to see You. Maybe, Father, for some like we've never seen You before, Cause our eyes to be opened, Lord, to your infinite majesty and your infinite glory. Teach us today from your word what it means to cry out to you, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Oh, Father, I ask that you would do this, that we might be forever changed in our worship, not only now, but forever that we might be individually and as a church the most brilliant testimony to the gospel of grace and Jesus Christ and the power of your spirit to compel us to worship. And so, Father, we pray with fervency and urgency and total dependency upon you. Our flesh cannot do this, but your spirit can. Make us willing, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Revelation 4, Brandon said to me, he, was, he and Hazel were down at a wedding last week, and he said, I, I could not miss the preaching on Revelation 4, and I hope that you feel the same. This is one of the few entrances in the Old and New Testament where we are taken by God's hand, literally by the hand of Christ, and we are ushered into the throne room of the thrice holy God. And you should not be able to read it in the Spirit of Christ and let alone hear it preached without being shaken to your core, and I pray, rightly stirred to want to worship Him very differently than you have been. The title of the sermon is, As It Is in Heaven, and I'm drawing that from our Lord's words in the Sermon on the Mount, where we are to worship God here on earth as it is in heaven right now at this very moment. In Revelation chapter 1, if you remember, we started with Jesus Christ appearing to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos somewhere early to mid-90s AD, and Jesus shows up in all of His glory. And he tells John, get a pen and start to write. I want you to write down everything that you hear and everything that you see. 
And one of the first things our Lord does, he says, the first thing we must do is we, write, we need to write some letters to some churches. So they wrote seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And as we saw over the past few weeks that in those letters there were words of great encouragement calling them to press on in the faith and letters and words of, of rebuke as well. But every single letter without exception ended with this cry and this call to conquer telling these churches, you must stay faithful until the end. And the reason that those are in the letters is because Christ wants to remind them that if they remain faithful, if they conquer in their faith, they will join the Heavenly Father in the heavenly realm, worshiping with the angels. John 4 picks up with this first-hand look as he's transported via a vision into their presence. Look at verse 1. After this, after the writing of the seven letters, after this, John says, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, that was Jesus, if you remember, from Revelation chapter 1, said, come up here, and I will show you what, you, what must take place after this. And so Jesus summons the apostle John up into the throne room of his Father in the highest heavens. And he's about to show John what must take place next. And of course he's talking about the the next vision of the seven seals, which we will begin next week. But before he gets to the seven seals, John will get the opportunity, truly the opportunity of a lifetime. He gets to see the royal courtroom of the God Almighty. The place where God's holiness is manifest perfectly the place where God's angels are engaged in perfect worship my beloved this morning I have I have a very simple goal in the preaching of this but a lofty goal in terms of our receiving it I would like for us to get the best picture we can of the worship of God that is taking place at this moment in heaven I want us to get a glimpse, and maybe more than a glimpse, if the Spirit is pleased, of God's holiness, what it means that He is holy, and the perfect worship that comes from it. And I would like to do that so that we might, being united to Christ, perfect our worship here on earth. That's all I'd like to do. But if we can do that, my beloved, if we can get a picture of the holiness of God and the perfect worship of the angels, and we can see that holiness, and worship God here on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, how blessed we will be and how powerful we will be as a gospel light here in this dark community. So let's do that this morning from Revelation chapter 4. Let's look at two things. Number one, the perfect worship in heaven. And number two, perfecting worship on earth. Perfect worship in heaven and perfecting worship on earth. The theme of the sermon is this. See the holiness of God and you will worship God. You see the holiness of God and you will, with your whole life, worship Him. Amen? Point number one, perfect worship in heaven. Now before we begin, I want to remind you that the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. 
Okay? The genre itself is to be read differently than you would read an historical narrative or an epistle. In fact, we even begin here. The heavenly door, the invitation to enter the heavenly door, the vision of the throne room of God, these are all literary devices that are characteristic of apocalyptic genre, that type of literature. And it's reminding us that when we hear these words read or we read them ourselves, we interpret them correctly. And that correct interpretation is not necessarily literal, but most likely symbolic. What do the words mean symbolically now this will require listen for your western minds and this is not easy for us to not think so literally and not think so systematically it'll require you to lean heavily upon the old testament because the old testament teaches us what the book of revelation means and to rely upon apocalyptic imagery to use the symbolism and your imagination to understand what it is that god is revealing to the apostle john look at verse 2 John writes, at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So without delay, the Apostle John, like the visionary prophets of the Old Testament, like Isaiah and like Ezekiel and like Daniel and Zechariah, he's brought up into the throne room. He's into the highest heavens. He's in the courtroom of God Almighty. Uh, my beloved, I, you can't, I can't even think about that without being overwhelmed by it. I hope you go, yeah, he's in the throne room. No, he's in the throne room of God. Seeing this. And the first thing that catches his eye is a throne and one seated upon the throne. Look at verse three. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now the throne in heaven in both the Old and New Testament is symbolic of absolute sovereignty. This throne in heaven is the highest throne. It is the supreme seat of power over the heavens and the earth, and therefore the one seated upon it has possession of absolute authority. And he's described here by John in some of the most colorful and majestic language possible. John tells us that his appearance is like, now listen, he's describing God here. God is not a jewel. He's a, his appearances. So this is a likeness. This is symbolic of. These precious stones, jasper, which could be red or yellow or green, carnelian, which was primarily this brilliant red, and then the emerald green is described as a rainbow-like emerald, green beyond imagination. Now in the Old Testament, these stones, they, are, they permeate places. They were on the, the ephod of the high priest as he went before the Lord. They were described by Ezekiel 28 as being in the Garden of Eden, these stones. And we know from Isaiah 54 that they are stones that we are going to see in the New Jerusalem, in the promised New Jerusalem. Together, listen, their colorful brilliance, it represents the majesty and the glory of God it's an attempt using created stones to describe the uncreated one, his infinite beauty and his infinite wealth. But this comparison, and I want you to listen with all your might, this comparison, as with all descriptions of God, they are attempts to describe the indescribable. Okay? 
the glory, the full glory, and the full majesty of God are beyond human expression, beyond human comprehension, beyond our categories of thought and speech and experience. And because his beauty and his glory and worth are truly, truly unparalleled, the only right response to hearing about the characteristics of the beauty and majesty and power of God, the only right response is to fall down and worship. The prophet Ezekiel, who also was taken up into the throne room, had a similar vision centuries before John. Ezekiel chapter 1, listen to Ezekiel's response. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. He had a similar vision. And when I saw it, Ezekiel said, I fell on my face in worship. Because that is the only right response to getting a glimpse of the majesty and glory of God. In other words, my beloved, whatever glimpses of glory we are given by God's grace, and they must be given, his true glory, his true beauty, his true power and majesty love is literally, infinitely greater. Now John is gazing upon God's glory and the throne, and he sees that there are others in this courtroom as well, that God's not alone. Look at verse four. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the throne were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads now i could spend a couple hours telling you about the various interpretations of these 24 elders i'm not going to do that the 24 elders some believe to be represent the 12 tribes of israel and the 12 apostles of the church and that's not a a bad interpretation i just don't think it's the correct one Most commentators argue that 24 elders are 24 angels. And they do so for good reason. First, we're at the very beginning of the book of Revelation. So the judgment has not happened, the consummation has not happened, and therefore the saints who will be seated upon thrones, who will wear crowns, are not there yet. So we're early in terms of the revelation. But even more contextually appropriate, the next chapter, chapter 24, chapter 24, chapter 5, The 24 elders, we get to chapter 24, we're in trouble. The 24 elders praise the lamb. Listen to this. The 24 elders, they praise the lamb for ransoming ransoming people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, but they do not include themselves. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, which we will get to next week, this is what they say. The 24 elders say, you have made them, speaking of Christians, you have made them, not us, a kingdom and priest to our God, and they, not we, shall reign on the earth. So there's compelling reason to conclude that these elders are actually angels. And lastly, the 24 uh, elders in the book of Revelation, they're always mentioned along with the four living creatures who are also angels and other angels. So there's compelling reason to believe that they are angelic Creatures. This is God's angelic assembly. God with his angels surrounding the throne. Now John tells us that they are seated on thrones and they have golden crowns, which means these are angels with power. They have authority. And he also tells us that they're wearing white garments, revealing what? Their absolute purity. They are sinless and they must be sinless because they're in the presence of the thrice holy God. Otherwise they could not be there. So John sees God seated upon the throne. He sees the 24 angels, these 24 elders, surrounding the throne of God. And then verse 5 shifts a little bit out, and it 
tells us some of the things that are happening around the throne. And listen, I want you to, I want you to use your imagination by hearing these words because John is trying to create a picture for you, an apocalyptic picture for you to be rightly overwhelmed by. Okay? Look at verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And you go, oh, that sounds familiar. And it absolutely does. You say, that's going to take us right back to Exodus chapter 19 and chapter 20. When God descended upon Mount Sinai and gave the law to Moses and to Israel. I know that. And you do. And these lightning storms communicated his awesome power. Especially in the context of judgment. And how terrifying it is to come into the presence of this thrice holy God. In fact, as we move forward and we look at the three judgment visions, the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh bowl are all accompanied by these lightning storms, this thunderstorm of God. So we see here that even in heaven, God's power and his justice are on full display for the angels to see. Look at the latter part of verse five. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And they said, oh, I remember that. The seven spirits of God, Revelation chapter one, you told us that represents the Holy Spirit. And I, and I believe it does. That these, these seven spirits, these seven torches represent the perfect, complete, Holy Spirit who is also fully God. And so he said, now wait a minute. Jesus is there. He took John up there. The Holy Spirit's there. And God is there. And that means in heaven... God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the holy triune God, is worshipped day and night by these angelic beings. How blessed they are. Look at verse 6. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, I would argue this is one of the more difficult, difficult pieces in this passage, in this particular chapter to get. In the Jewish tradition, the sea, most of you probably know this or remember it, it represents chaos or evil or death. And so some argue that this sea of glass and this, 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 with its crystal appearance is, is God being supreme, his throne being supreme over all evil. And that may be the case. But others think, and I, and I would argue this is probably more probable, that the glass and its crystal-like qualities symbolize and reflect the matchless beauty and perfect holiness of God a holiness that creates an impassable barrier between the thrice holy God and man because of our sin. In other words, an eternal gulf that separates God from sinful human beings. I think that's, that's probably more accurate. John continues the latter part of verse 6. Look with me. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now remember, full of eyes, you're thinking, I know you have this image right now, and it's not a pretty image, right? Anything full of eyes, I don't know about you, I'm like, ugh, you know, it's like something from a, a horror movie. It's symbolic language, right? Which you say, well, that means that they see well, they see everything. Yes, now you're, now you're thinking apocalyptically, that's good. So these are very similar. These four living creatures are very similar to the four living creatures described by the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And he identifies them very clearly as cherubim, as a type of angel. Now the cherubim, for those of you who know your, your angelic studies in the Old Testament, they're always associated with the presence of God or the throne of God, protecting the holiness of God. It was their responsibility, not that God needed their protection, 
But that was their role, to guard his holiness. In fact, in the Old Testament, the cherubim can be found, you probably remember this, Genesis 3.24, they guard the what? The way to the tree of life. You can't get back in because of our sin. And in the tabernacle and in the temple, it's the cherubim who are hovering over the mercy seat of Christ in the holiest of holies. And in the tabernacle, on the curtains, the cherubim were actually woven into the curtains. And in the temple, they were, they were etched into the stone. In other words, the cherubim were responsible to protect and guard the holiness of God, keeping sinful man away. John describes them here full of eyes in front and back. Again, not literally, but figuratively. They were protectors of God's holiness. They could see everything and ensure that his holiness was not violated ever, day or night. It's truly an extraordinary picture. Look at verse 7. He begins to describe them now a little bit in detail. The first living creature was like a lion. That's the king of the beasts. You know that. The second living creature was like an ox. That was the most powerful, domesticated animal that man used. Keep going. The third living creature with the face of a man's, the pinnacle. We know man was made in the image of God, the pinnacle of God's creation. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, the most majestic of birds. Now remember, John was not seeing an angelic lion, an angelic ox, an angelic human, an angelic eagle. Because that's the image we have. It's symbolic for their character and their nature as angelic beings. In other words, these four extraordinary angels shared in the likeness of the grandeur of some of God's most incredible creatures. In the likeness of the grandeur, in the power and the glory of some of God's most incredible creatures. So together, listen, these four angels symbolize all of God's most magnificent creatures. Right? You have the wild animals, the domestic animals, you have man, you have birds, and they're all doing what? They're all bowing down before God Almighty. These magnificent creatures representing the totality of all creation, showing all creation what we all should be doing that's bowing down to the living God. I mean, in all their glory, I know the description for us is kind of weird. We hear about lots of eyes and you have faces of a man and and we think so literally, but symbolically, they have this grandeur of being some of the most remarkable creatures made by God and yet what are they doing? They are not worshiping themselves or one another. They're bowing down to worship God and God alone. Verse eight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings. Now that, that resembles the six wings we just heard of the seraphim described in Isaiah chapter six, verse two. Full of eyes, again, he, he bookends this full of eyes all around him. So these, these four living creatures, they enjoyed characteristics of the, of the cherubim and the seraphim. These were some remarkable angelic beings. But in the context of Revelation 4, listen, lest we get off point, it wasn't their magnificence that captured the Apostle John. It was what these magnificent creatures were doing that captivated him. Look at the latter part of verse 8. The four living creatures, day and night, day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Four powerful, beautiful, glorious creatures in the presence of God are compelled to fall down and worship God. Complete 
and total adoration. Every moment of every day, day and night, never ceasing to cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Thrice holy God. Completely set apart from creation. Truly distinct and infinitely greater than all that God has made. That is who he is and that's why they lived to worship him. And their worship, these four living creatures, their worship, it was contagious. Look at verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. These 24 elders, these 24 angels, they cast their crowns before the throne. So the 24 elders see the four beautiful, majestic angels worshiping, and they worship too. They can't help themselves. And they worship by taking their crowns and humbly throwing them at the feet of this one seated upon the throne. Look at the latter part of verse 10. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created So they too worship God by declaring that He alone is worthy of all glory and honor and power. He tells us because He is the creator and sustainer. Simply put, because He alone, the one seated upon the throne, is God. So the entire focus of this chapter is not on the enthroned 24 angels, which we get so caught up on, and not upon the four living creatures, as magnificent as they are. The focus of this vision, listen, is on the perfect and perpetual worship of the one who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. You want a theme that comes out of chapter 4? That's it. The perfect, perpetual worship by these magnificent Sinless angels of the one who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. The picture in heaven is so extraordinary that it should cause us to want to worship God in the exact same way. In other words, their seeing God's glory compelled them to worship. They could, I'll give you a double negative. They could not not worship God in seeing God's glory. It was a derivative. Worship is a derivative of God's holiness. My beloved, when you're, when you're hungry, you will want to eat. And unless you're unable, you will get something to eat. When you're thirsty, you want to drink. When you're tired, you want to sleep. If music's on, you'll want to sing or you want to dance. I hope you do if it's good music. When you see the holiness of God, you will want to worship. When you get a glimpse of the holiness of God, you were made to worship His holiness. And that means that if we see God's holiness daily, if we see God's holiness hour by hour, then our whole lives, everything that we do will be an act of worship. Whether we eat or whether we drink, whether we sleep or whether we sing or whether we dance, it will be for the glory and majesty of God. And you will be compelled to do that. You will want to do that to the degree that you see God's holiness. 
This was the purpose of the angelic assembly in the highest heavens. This was their purpose, and this was their joy. If you ask them, is there anything else you'd like to be doing right now? They'd say, are you out of your mind? Look! Do you see him? And then you'd say, what a foolish question. You'd bow down and worship too. So the entire scene of chapter 4, the throne, God seated upon the throne, the presence of the Holy Spirit and Christ, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, all worshiping God, lightning storms, glassy sea, the total picture should be for us God's terrifying, beautiful, unmatched holiness. Permeates chapter 4. Defines chapter 4. That he truly is. He truly is the only one who is exalted above all of creation. He's the only one. He is the holy other. The infinitely greater. And the right response to such holiness is worship. The right response to such perfect holiness is perfect worship. R.C. Sproul put it well. He said, God's holiness signifies everything about God that sets him apart from us and makes him an object of awe and adoration and dread. His holiness. He is, my beloved, the only one worthy of your glory and your honor and your praise. He's the only one. The angels got that. And that's why they worshiped him as they did. And if this is the worship of God in heaven, and we want to worship God on earth as it is in heaven, then I would argue, my beloved, and I hope that you don't disagree with me on this point, that we need a radical course correction. We need a radical course correction. If our worship is not like that of the angels in heaven, that means all the idols that we serve, and we serve many in this cultural moment, and the half-hearted worship that we give to this holy, holy, holy God, listen please, it's not only hateful to God who is jealous for his glory and says, I will give my glory to no one. It is hateful to him. But I would argue that in light of this single chapter, it is the height. Your idol worship, your partial worship of this holy God You're engaging in sin to satisfy that which only God can satisfy. It is the height. It is the consummation. It is the pinnacle of stupidity. It is the pinnacle of foolishness for those of us created in the image of God, not worshiping our thrice holy God. So what do we need? What do we need to be like the angels in heaven worshiping God in all of his worth? I would say we need two things. Number one, we need to experience the holiness of God. You said that's the derivative. The right worship comes from his holiness. So I gotta see it, I gotta know it, I gotta experience it. And number two, we have to respond to his holiness in faith, living each day in light of who he really is. So point number two, I pray you're still with me. I didn't bore you with that, did I? Praise God. If, if we get bored talking about the holiness of God, we're in deep trouble perfecting worship on earth. So the angels worshiped God perfectly in heaven. We want to perfect our worship on earth. In our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus was teaching the disciples to pray, 
He said, our Father, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done, what? On earth as it is in heaven. This is the first part of the Our Father prayer, a prayer that our brothers and sisters have been praying to God now for centuries. But what does it mean for the will of our Holy Father to be done here on earth as it is in heaven? What does that mean? And, and how is the will of God being exercised in heaven right now? We say, well, I think I know the answer. You just, we just heard it read in chapter four. We clearly see that the will of God in heaven is for his creatures to worship him perfectly. No idols, no sin, no temptation, no deviation from the absolute perfect worship of God day and night. That's God's will in heaven right now. That's what's taking place in heaven right now. And therefore, it is God's will for all of creation, all of us earth dwellers, to worship God on earth as he is being worshiped at this very moment in heaven. It is our perfecting our worship of the one true living God. The question is not, well, if that's what we're supposed to do, I'm not sure what that looks like. The question is, how do we do it? How do I worship God? You see, the, the, the primary difference between worship in heaven and worship on earth is the manifestation, the experiencing, the seeing of God's holiness. Holiness is what differentiates our two realms at this point. The seeing, the understanding, and then responding to God's absolute holiness. In what? In praise and adoration and service. The 24 angels cast their crowns down before God saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. But why? Why did they do that? These, are, these were extraordinary angelic beings. They were seated upon thrones. They had golden crowns. They were adorned in white garments because they were sin, sinless, powerful, sinless creatures. And yet they declare God to be worthy of glory and honor and praise. All glory and honor and praise. Was it simply because he is their creator and as creator he is worthy to be worshiped? Or might it be, and I think this is what the text tells us, that as our creator he is also holy, holy, holy holy the lord god almighty he's just not the god who created all that is seen and unseen he is the holy 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 god who created all that is seen and unseen it is his holiness that differentiates worship it is seeing his holiness that determines worship my beloved holiness is what makes him worthy it's what compels all creation to bow down to him in worship. Now the reason that may not be resonating with you right now, in the, in the Western church we have relegated the term holy or holiness to an ethical category. We think holy, we think sinless. We think holy, we think righteous, without sin. We think holy, we think clean. There's a problem here though. The angels who were worshiping God, declaring his holiness, were without sin. They were clean too. They were holy in that ethical or moral sense. So there's something much bigger about God's holiness than just the fact that he is sinless. He is certainly sinless, so we would say he's holy that way, but it means so much more when we talk about the holiness of God. In fact, I would go so far as to argue, you could say this is the one of the major tenets of our entire faith, the holiness of God 
and the worship that is due to him because he is holy. When Moses approached the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, do you remember what God said to him? Hey, Moses, welcome, Moses. He said, take off your shoes, Moses. Take your sandals off, Moses, because what? You're standing on holy ground. And Moses says, this looks like the same dirt I've been walking on for days. What made the holy ground holy was the presence of the holy God. This is the first reference, my beloved, to God's holiness in the Bible. Exodus chapter 3, do you know that? First reference to his holiness in the Bible. Not that he wasn't holy prior to Exodus 3, but this is the first reference in the revelation we get. And in the context of his holiness, do you remember what he says to Moses? Moses wants to know, when I go back to your people and I, and I tell them you sent me, who am I going to say that you are? What name do you have? And he says, tell them I am sent you, the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, the Holy One. Tell them that's who sent you the Holy One of Israel. And now here, in the heavenly throne room, they plagiarized, did they not? I mean, they pulled from Exodus chapter three, verse five, and the four living creatures and all the 24 are also saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And you see, you know, there must be something, this holiness. Holiness is the only attribute in the entire Bible that is used to speak of God with a triple repetition. You know that? It doesn't say love, love, love. It doesn't say grace, grace, grace. It says holy, holy, holy. The only time in the scriptures that this characteristic is in triple repetition to describe how holy this God is. You say, well, why is that? Holiness in the Bible is more than an ethical category. Holiness functions. Now listen, because this is really where the door is going to open up for you and hopefully change your worship. Holiness functions as a way of describing or qualifying all of God's other attributes as being superlative without, literally, without comparison. So the great Puritan, John Howe, 17th century Puritan, he put it like this. He said, holiness is an attribute of attributes. It's an attribute of attributes. So, When we think of God's attributes, we must think of them in a completely different category. So his power is what? His power is not just power that's greater than ours, it's holy power, distinctly other. His truth is holy truth. His love is holy love. In other words, God's holiness is the very luster and glory of all his other perfections. It's it's the term used to say it's over the top in another category in both the hebrew and the greek holiest means to be set apart set apart or separated from all that is common or ordinary or profane or unclean so we certainly want to say holiness means clean cleanliness or purity but even more so when you hear the word holiness or that god is holy i want you to think of god being separate from all that is common from all that is creation that which makes him truly what divine truly god because he is holy geras vos he put it like this god is the holy one because he exists to himself and nothing can be compared to him. Nothing. 
The metaphysical gap that exists, he writes, between him and the creature is therefore expressed by the concept of holiness. My beloved, that means we've got to stop bringing God down to our level. Or maybe even worse yet, elevating ourselves up to the level of God. He is holy, holy, holy. His holiness highlights, it magnifies, and it draws attention to all that God is. Holiness is the lens by which we are to see his power and to see his goodness and to see his love and his justice, to see them being infinitely greater because they are a different category. There is no comparison. God's love is not just a love that's higher than man's. It is in a category all its own. God's goodness is not just a higher goodness. It is a heavenly goodness, a divine goodness. So that means, my beloved, when you are contemplating Beauty here on earth. And there are many things that should captivate you in the beauty. Hopefully your spouse. Hopefully your children, your grandchildren. Maybe just the other day I got to see a sunrise on a winter morning. Oh, stunning. Maybe it's your favorite work of art or your favorite movie or your favorite piece of music. God's beauty is literally infinitely greater because it's a beauty all its own. In fact, if you were to take all the beauty and all the known universe in heaven and on earth and you were to put all that beauty together and you say, this is the most magnificent beauty that I can possibly imagine, compared to God, that beauty becomes ugly. That's how beautiful God is. If you were to take the most valuable things to you in this world, hopefully it'll be those whom you love at the top of your list, your family, your friends, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe for some of you, it'll be your career or your education. So for some, you say, what's valuable to me is my bank account or my family heirloom or my library. If you were to take all that is valuable to you and you would compare it to the surpassing worth of God, all those things together would be worthless. That's how worthy God is. You say, I, I can't comprehend that. You're absolutely right. But we must try. We must try to approach the holy, holy, holy God. This is what the angelic beings in the courtroom saw. This is what they understood. And that's why they, even in their greatness and all their own glory, that's why they bowed down and they worshiped because they knew there's no one compared to the glory of God. There's nothing compared to the glory of God. And so they worshiped day and night. And that means their entire existence was to worship God. Joel Beakey writes this. He said, the angels cover themselves in God's holy presence. Not because they, uh, they have sinned. They were sinless, remember? They cover themselves because as immortal spirits, they are overwhelmed by God's holiness and unapproachable light. They're so overwhelmed by his holiness that they cover their eyes. So perfect worship taking place in heaven is a worship that we want to strive for and replicate here on earth. It was the product not only of God's holiness being manifest and seen and understood, but it was also the product of the angels being present. They had access to the holiness of God in the heavenly places. 
So the second question is, how, how do we get there? How do we do this? How do we get access into the holiness of God? And can I get there as a sinner? Or I think I know enough of my scriptures to know that as a sinner in his presence, I'd probably be put to death. How do we get there? First and foremost, Jesus makes it clear that you must what? You must be born again. Remember when the Pharisee Nicodemus came out to Jesus in the middle of the night? Remember in John chapter 3? And he says, Lord, Lord, and he wants to know how you enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says to him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, let alone enter it. Well, if you can't see the kingdom of God, you can't see the king. If you can't see the king, you can't see his holiness. If you can't see his holiness, you can't worship. You can't worship. So the first thing that Jesus says here is that you must be born again. You must be made alive by the Holy Spirit of God through repentance and faith. Because until you do, those cherubim are still going to block your way. No access. They'll make sure of that. Their eyes are everywhere. Remember, they see everything. And that glassy sea that separates the, the magnificent holiness of God from sinful man, it's that barrier. You can't get there without Christ, without being born again. But in Christ, through the cross, that's the way back in. That's our access into the presence of the thrice holy God. You see, on the cross, God's holy hatred, his perfect hatred for sin was poured out on who? On his sinless son, satisfying his holy justice. But the cross was also the greatest manifestation, as we know, of God's holy mercy, of God's holy grace, and God's holy love. Through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, paying our debt, our sin debt in full, God the Father is able to grant us what? Holy mercy. Holy grace can be given to us. He can forgive us of our sins. And through the blood of Christ, he cleanses us. And he does what? Just like the angels in heaven, he gives you a white garment, which is the adornment of the blood of Christ, that you might be holy as he is holy and have access to this thrice holy God. Anyone and everyone who repents of his rebellious heart, turns to the crucified risen Savior and trusts that God will save him through Christ, gains access to the throne room. You get in. You get into the presence of the holy, holy, holy God Almighty so that we too, those in Christ, can just like the angels, what? We can do what they did in verse 8. We can cry out, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We can say in verse 11 with the angels, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. We can say this and we can mean it because we've been born again and Christ dwells in us. So in order for our worship of God on earth to be as it is in heaven, we must be born again. We must be born again so that we can see and experience the holiness of God. Being born again does not lead to right worship. It's being born again to see the holiness of God that leads to right worship. Not a sinner to be judged, but a sinner saved by grace, made a son or daughter of the kingdom, able to access, gaze upon, and experience God's holiness day and night. But the second thing we must do to worship God faithfully on earth is to respond to his holiness in faith. And that means living every moment of every day in light of who he is. Worthy of glory and honor and praise. 
You see, my beloved, the primary reason most Christians do not take the daily hour-by-hour worship of God seriously, being as, I love J.C. Ryle in his book on holiness, he describes it like this, being of one mind with God, hating what God hates, loving what God loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. That's worship. We think of worship on Sunday mornings, we gather, we pray, we sing, we listen, we eat, we leave. Worship is your total life. It's your whole existence before this thrice holy God. Most Christians, though, we don't take daily worship seriously because what? We lose sight of God's holiness. We lose sight of his holiness. We do not see God in all of his glory clearly, hour by hour, day by day. And so what do we do? We begin to drift, don't we? Our eyes begin to wander, and we look at created things made by God rather than the creator God himself. We look to worldly treasures. We look to worldly purposes for our life, for our joy, for our hope. We look to work. We look to power, to money, to success. None of which, my beloved, are worthy of your honor and praise. We begin to live as though we are our own gods, do we not? We begin to do what is right, what? In our own eyes. This was not a problem for the sinless angels before the throne of God in heaven. It was not a problem because they were sinless and God's holy manifestation was perfect. But it is a problem for us. You say, well, it's certainly a problem for me. Right? We are, we are sinful, saved by grace, but still dealing with sin, and we live in a sinful world, and therefore we are blind at times to God's holiness. God's holiness doesn't change. God's holiness is as perfect now as it has always been, but we, we in our sin, we're blinded to it. We don't see it. We don't treasure it. We don't chase after it. And in our blindness, we fail to worship God as he rightly deserves, and we settle, do we not, for idols. We settle for sin, for lesser gods. My beloved, if some of you may be getting a, a year-end review by your employer. I know that's common during this time, and oftentimes there's some nerves attached to that. Now imagine you've had a really good year, you've been faithful, you've accomplished your goals, and you sit down with your boss, and your boss says, listen, you've been paid well, we're very thankful, you've been super faithful this year, and so we're going to give you a bonus They don't have to give you a bonus. It's an act of grace by your employer. But you've been faithful, and they want to give you a bonus. And so here's here's the option for you. They said, listen, we can give you $1,000 today. You're going to walk out with $1,000 in cash because of your faithful service to us. But if you wait one year, once we vest these stocks, we'll give you $1 million. You can have $1,000 today, cash, or wait a year, and I'll give you $1 million. And you think, you know, I really, really want that iPhone right now. I really want, I don't have the cash for it. If I get the $1,000, I can buy the iPhone. And so you take the $1,000 and you forsake the million. And then your employer turns around and fires you because you're so stupid, right? <laughs> Settling. We settle because we're blind. We settle because we're foolish. Every time we sin and every time we are tempted to sin, we are settling because we don't see the holiness of God and what we're giving up. My beloved, if the church in Ephesus had a clear vision of the holiness of God, they saw him, the jasper and the carnelian and the rainbow, 
that had the appearance of emerald, do you think they would have been lacking in love? Do you think they'd have chased after the idols and given their love to idols had they seen God clearly? The answer is, of course not. What about Thyatira? Thyatira, they embraced Jezebel, remember, and the deep things of Satan. Had they seen the purity of the thrice holy God seated upon the throne, if they saw the angels covering their eyes because God is so pure, do you think they would have allowed that teaching in their church? The answer is no. What about those sleeping in Sardis? If they had seen and heard the flashes of lightning and the rumblings and the peals of thunder, do you think they'd have woken up? They wouldn't have gone to sleep. And what about the arrogant, lukewarm saints in Laodicea who thought, remember, so highly of themselves? I dare say in their sin they did not compare to the 24 elders or the four living creatures, let alone the holy, holy, holy God. Had they seen God's holiness clearly, would they not have humbled themselves to the core? Would they not have tossed down their crowns at his feet? And would they not have cried out, holy, holy, holy are you too? Of course they would have. The struggle is the same for us today, my beloved. We don't worship God as we should on earth because we don't see and experience and live in the presence of his holiness now. That's our greatest struggle when we think about our inability to worship God well. It's not because we don't have access. If you're in Christ, you know, Hebrews 10, 19, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. You have access. That door has been opened through the blood of Christ. Hebrews chapter four, verse 16 says, we can come in with confidence and draw near to the throne of grace. You can get right past the glassy sea, right, right past the angels, right up to the throne because of the blood of Jesus. So this is not an access problem. Don't blame it on God. Don't say, I can't get in. I can't get close. That's a lie. Jesus, my beloved, is not only our access into the holiness of God. Listen, he's your vision for God's holiness. Jesus doesn't just let you in. He says, look at me if you want to see the holiness of God. You see, John was blessed, was he not? He had a vision. He was taken by Christ, and he entered into the throne room. He had a vision. And therefore, he was able to see and experience the holiness of God and perfect worship. You say, well, I, I'm not being transported this morning. No one's grabbing me by the hand and taking me through that open door. If you've been born again and the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you and you've been united with Christ by faith, Jesus now is your vision. Jesus is your vision your means of seeing the holiness of God, of worshiping God rightly day and night with your whole life. You see, Christ made himself known to us. He lived that holy life without sin, did he not? He exercised the holy miracles. He exercised a holy sacrifice and holy suffering on the cross. He displayed a holy love. He displayed holy teachings and holy mercy, all to redeem sinners like us. So he can say to you, look at me, Christ will say, and you will see the holiness of my Father in heaven. In John chapter 14, do you remember, remember our, our poor old boy, Philip? Philip, Jesus is preparing the disciples for his departure, and Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough for us. Now, Philip got something that we missed today. He said, he's saying to Jesus, show us the holiness of God the Father, and that's it. 
My whole life will make sense. My whole life will be complete if you show me the Father. Everything will come into right perspective. Philip understood, show me the holiness of the Father. I'll stop serving myself. I'll stop bowing down to idols. I will worship God and serve God alone. So it's not an entirely bad statement, but it is a bad statement. You remember what Jesus says in shock, verse nine. Philip, have I been with you so long and you still not know me? He says, whoever has seen me, listen with all your might, has seen who? The Father. She says, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus says, I am holy too. Which means you know how to see holiness of God. To see Jesus, to know Jesus personally through faith, is to see and experience the holiness of God. You don't have to sit and wait for a Revelation chapter four vision to be transported up into the heavenly highest heavens. You have Christ, and if you have Christ, you have the holiness of God. John chapter one, verse 14, the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen what? His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. His holiness is the holiness of the Father. You have full access in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen, amen. So here's your answer, my beloved. Here's how you, as a sinner saved by grace, still living in this fallen world, can worship God now on earth as his angels are worshiping him in heaven. See Jesus. I'm gonna make this as simple as I can. See Christ. Know Christ, commune daily with Christ, grow in your love and passion for Christ because to see him is to see the holiness of God. To know Jesus is to experience the holiness of God. I'm talking about the same life-transforming holiness that will make you a worshiper of God like the angels worship God in heaven. It puts your whole life in proper perspective. All your relationships all your aspirations, your education, your work, your dreams, everything falls into place when you see the holiness of God and worship him correctly. That's the path to perfect worship. So when you are struggling, my beloved, and some of you are right now, if things are really hard at home and your marriage, hard with your children, hard at work, and you want to turn to that idol, you say, oh, I just need that hour of television. I just need that little piece of food. I just need a little social media. Holy Jesus, listen, holy Jesus set apart is saying to you, turn to me instead. Christ, you know, Christ says, I have for you holy comfort. Remember, everything that comes from God is in a category all its own. Christ is saying, come to me. I have holy comfort. I have holy love. I have holy grace beyond your wildest dreams and I'm gonna give it to you freely. When the anxieties of this life have you in the throes of despair and you find yourself turning again and again to things like alcohol or drugs or medication to settle your soul, holy Jesus is saying to you, come to me, you know this, with your heavy laden heart. And Jesus says, I'm gonna give you a holy rest. Not rest that you find here, not good rest, a perfect holy rest from heaven. Jesus says, come to me and experience a holy gentleness like you've never experienced on earth. He says, come to me, experience my lowly heart, a holy heart, more compassionate, more loving, and more kind than anything in all creation. 
when you're suffering in this life and it causes you to take your eyes off Christ because oftentimes it does, right? That suffering becomes, we become myopically focused on our circumstances. Jesus reminds you that his love for you is a holy love. It is a love that has no category here on earth and that love binds him to you and you to him so that he will never ever, he cannot leave or forsake his own. No matter how bad things get here, no matter how dark the darkness seems, my beloved Jesus is the holiness of God. If you want to worship God on earth as it is in heaven, draw near to him, draw near to Christ and he will draw near to you and his holiness will compel you to joyfully and completely submit your whole life to him in worship. It'll compel you, and it'll be a glorious compulsion. Worshiping God is what you were made for. Worshiping God is your purpose and your joy and will be your contentment. So I encourage you this morning to see God's holiness and worship him on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even with this glorious passage, we know that we cannot see you unless you make yourself known. We know that your holiness was manifest perfectly in Christ. We know for those of us who believe you've united us to Christ by your Spirit and therefore each and every one of us is without excuse. We have full access into your throne room, full access to the holiness that has been made known to us in Jesus. Father, do this for your church here. Make your holiness known to us in ways that we've never seen before. Change our daily lives from being focused on the things of this world and the treasures of this world to being focused upon you and your holiness and your majesty. For if you do this, Father, we will worship you differently. We will perfect our worship on earth as it is in heaven. And we will look forward, Father, to that day when sin is thrown into the lake of fire and there is no longer a barrier that separates us from you. No longer will the cherubim try to keep us out. No longer will the glassy sea be an infinite barrier. Instead, Lord, we will be brought into your presence forever as holy, redeemed sons and daughters. Until then, Father, make us perfecting our worship. We ask that you would do this, Lord, for our well-being but ultimately for your glory, for you are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. You are the holy, holy, holy God. Amen.